0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: Book 1, Chapter 1 of the Leavenworth case. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Green The Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green Book One, The Problem, Chapter One A Great Case A Deed of Dreadful Note Macbeth. I had been a junior partner in the firm of Veely, Carr and Raymond, attorneys and counsellors at law, for about a year, when one morning, in the temporary absence of both Mr. Veely and Mr. Carr, there came into our office a young man whose whole appearance was so indicative of haste and agitation, that I involuntarily rose at his approach, and impetuously inquired, "'What is the matter?' "'You have no bad news to tell, I hope.' "'I have come to see Mr. Veely. Is he in?' "'No,' I replied. He was unexpectedly called away this morning to Washington. "'Cannot be home before to-morrow, but if you will make your business known to me—' "'To you, sir,' he repeated, turning a very cold but steady eye on mine. Then, seeming to be satisfied with his scrutiny, continued, "'There is no reason why I shouldn't. Uh, my business is no secret.' I came to inform him that Mr. Leavenworth is dead." "'Mr. Leavenworth!' I exclaimed, falling back a step. Mr. Leavenworth was an old client of our firm, to say nothing of his being the particular friend of Mr. Veeley. "'Yes. Murdered. Shot through the head by some unknown person while sitting at his library table.' "'Shot? Murdered?' I could scarcely believe my ears. "'How? When?' I gasped. Uh, "'Last night. At least, so we suppose. He was not found till this morning. I am Mr. Leavenworth's private secretary,' he explained, and live in the family. It was a dreadful shock,' he went on, especially to the ladies. "'Dreadful!' I repeated. "'Mr. Veely will be overwhelmed by it.' "'They are all alone,' he continued, in a low business-like way I afterwards found to be inseparable from the man. The Mrs. Leavenworth, I mean.' Mr. Leavenworth's nieces, and as an inquest is to be held there to-day, it is deemed proper for them to have some one present, capable of advising them. As Mr. Veely was their uncle's best friend, they naturally sent me for him, but he being absent, I am at a loss what to do or where to go. "'I am a stranger to the ladies,' was my hesitating reply. "'But if I can be of any assistance to them, my respect for their uncle is such—' The expression of the secretary's eye stopped me. Without seeming to wander from my face, its pupil had suddenly dilated, till it appeared to embrace my whole person with its scope. "'I don't know,' he finally remarked, a slight frown testifying to the fact that he was not altogether pleased with the turn affairs were taking— perhaps it would be best the ladies must not be left alone say no more i will go and sitting down i dispatched a hurried message to mr veeley after which and a few other preparations necessary i accompanied the secretary to the street now said i tell me all you know of this frightful affair all i know a few words will do that i left him last night sitting as usual at his library table and found him this morning, seated in the same place, almost in the same position, but with a bullet-hole in his head as large as the end of my little finger. "'Dead?' "'Stone-dead.' "'Horrible!' I exclaimed. Then, after a moment, "'Could it have been a suicide?' "'No. The pistol with which the deed was committed is not to be found.' "'But if it was a murder, there must have been some motive.' "'Mr. Leavenworth was too benevolent a man to have enemies, and if robbery was intended—' "'There was no robbery. There is nothing missing,' he again interrupted. "'The whole affair is a mystery.' "'A mystery! An utter mystery!' Turning, I looked at my informant curiously. The inmate of a house in which a mysterious murder had occurred was rather an interesting object but the good featured and yet totally unimpressive countenance of the man beside me offered but little basis for even the wildest imagination to work upon and glancing almost immediately away i asked are the ladies very much overcome he took at least half a dozen steps before replying it would be unnatural if they were not and whether it was the expression of his face at the time or the nature of the reply itself, I felt that in speaking of these ladies to this uninteresting, self-possessed secretary of the late Mr. Leavenworth, I was somehow treading upon dangerous ground. As I had heard they were very accomplished women, I was not altogether pleased at this discovery. It was therefore with a certain consciousness of relief I saw a Fifth Avenue stage approach. "'We will defer our conversation,' said I. "'Here's the stage.' But, once seated within it, we soon discovered that all intercourse upon such a subject was impossible. Employing the time, therefore, in running over in my mind what I knew of Mr. Leavenworth, I found that my knowledge was limited to the bare fact of his being a retired merchant of great wealth and fine social position, who, in default of possessing children of his own, had taken into his home two nieces, one of whom had already been declared his heiress, To be sure, I had heard Mr. Veeley speak of his eccentricities, giving as an instance this very fact, of his making a will in favour of one niece to the utter exclusion of the other, but of his habits of life and connection with the world at large I knew little or nothing. There was a great crowd in front of the house when we arrived there, and I had barely time to observe that it was a corner-dwelling of unusual depth when I was seized by the throng and carried quite to the front of the broad stone steps. Extricating myself, though with some difficulty, owing to the importunities of a boot-black and a butcher's boy, who seemed to think that by clinging to my arms they might succeed in smuggling themselves into the house, I mounted the steps, and finding the secretary, by some unaccountable good fortune, close to my side, hurriedly rang the bell. Immediately the door opened, and a face I recognised as that of one of our city detectives appeared in the gap. "'Mr. Gryce, I exclaimed. "'The same,' he replied. "'Come in, Mr. Raymond.' And drawing us quietly into the house, he shut the door with a grim smile on the disappointed crowd without. "'I trust you are not surprised to see me here?' said he, holding out his hand with a side glance at my companion. "'No,' I returned. Then, with a vague idea that I ought to introduce the young man at my side, continued, "'This is Mr.—Mr.—Excuse me, but I do not know your name,' I said inquiringly to my companion. "'The private secretary of the late Mr. Leavenworth,' I hastened to add. "'Oh!' he returned. "'The secretary—the coroner has been asking for you, sir.' "'The coroner is here, then?' "'Yes.' the jury have just gone upstairs to view the body would you like to follow them no it is not necessary i have merely come in the hope of being of some assistance to the young ladies mr Veley is away and you thought the opportunity too good to be lost he went on just so still now that you are here and as the case promises to be a marked one I should think that, as a rising young lawyer, you would wish to make yourself acquainted with it in all its details. But follow your own judgment.' I made an effort, and overcame my repugnance. "'I will go,' said I. "'Very well, then. Follow me.' But just as I set foot on the stairs, I heard the jury descending. So, drawing back with Mr. Grice into a recess between the reception-room and the parlour, I had time to remark, the young man says it could not have been the work of a burglar. Indeed, fixing his eye on a doorknob near by, that nothing has been found missing, and that the fastenings to the house were all found secure this morning, just so. He did not tell me that. In that case, and I shuddered, the murderer must have been in the house all night. Mr. Grice smiled darkly at the doorknob. "'It has a dreadful look!' I exclaimed. Mr. Grice immediately frowned at the doorknob. "'And here let me say that Mr. Grice, the detective, was not the thin, wiry individual with the piercing eye you are doubtless expecting to see. On the contrary, Mr. Grice was a portly, comfortable personage, with an eye that never pierced. That did not even rest on you.' If it rested anywhere, it was always on some insignificant object in the vicinity—some vase, inkstand, book, or button. These things he would seem to take into his confidence—make the repositories of his conclusions. But as for you, you might as well be the steeple on the Trinity Church, for all connection you ever appeared to have with him or his thoughts. At present, then, Mr. Gryce was, as I have already suggested, on intimate terms with the doorknob. "'A dreadful look,' I repeated. His eye shifted to the button on my sleeve. "'Come,' he said. "'The coast is clear at last.' Leading the way, he mounted the stairs, but stopped on the upper landing. "'Mr. Raymond,' said he, "'I am not in the habit of talking much about the secrets of my profession.' BUT IN THIS CASE EVERYTHING DEPENDS UPON GETTING THE RIGHT clue AT THE START. WE HAVE NO COMMON VILLAINY TO DEAL WITH HERE. GENIUS HAS BEEN AT WORK. NOW, SOMETIMES AN ABSOLUTELY UNINITIATED MIND WILL INTUITIVELY CATCH AT SOMETHING WHICH THE MOST HIGHLY TRAINED INTELLECT WILL MISS. IF SUCH A THING SHOULD OCCUR, "'Remember that I am your man. "'Don't go round talking, but come to me, "'for this is going to be a great case, mind you, "'a great case. "'Now, come on. "'But the ladies? "'They are in the rooms above. "'In grief, of course, "'but tolerably composed for all that, I hear. "'And advancing to a door, He pushed it open, and beckoned me in. All was dark for a moment, but presently, my eyes becoming accustomed to the place, I saw that we were in the library. "'It was here he was found,' said he, "'in this room, and upon this very spot.' And advancing, he laid his hand on the end of a large, baize-covered table that, together with its attendant chairs, occupied the centre of the room." You see for yourself that it is directly opposite this door. And crossing the floor, he paused in front of the threshold of a narrow passageway, opening into a room beyond. As the murdered man was discovered, sitting in this chair, and consequently with his back towards the passageway, the assassin must have advanced through the doorway to deliver his shot, pausing, let us say, about here.' and Mr. Grice planted his feet firmly upon a certain spot in the carpet, about a foot from the threshold before mentioned. "'But,' I hastened to interpose, "'there is no room for but,' he cried. "'We have studied the situation.' And without deigning to dilate upon the subject, he turned immediately about, and stepping swiftly before me, led the way into the passage named— "'Wine-closet, clothes-closet, washing-apparatus, towel-rack,' he explained, waving his hand from side to side as we hurried through, finishing with—'Mr. Leavenworth's private apartment,' as that room of comfortable aspect opened upon us. "'Mr. Leavenworth's private apartment! It was here, then, that it ought to be—the horrible, blood-curdling it that yesterday—' was a living, breathing man. Advancing to the bed that was hung with heavy curtains, I raised my hand to put them back, when Mr. Grice, drawing them from my clasp, disclosed lying upon the pillow a cold, calm face, looking so natural I involuntarily started. His death was too sudden to distort the features, he remarked, turning the head to one side, in a way to make visible a ghastly wound in the back of the cranium. Such a hole as that sends a man out of the world without much notice. The surgeon will convince you it could never have been inflicted by himself. It is a case of deliberate murder." Horrified I drew hastily back, when my glance fell upon a door, situated directly opposite me, in the side of the wall, towards the hall it appeared to be the only outlet from the room with the exception of the passage through which we had entered and i could not help wondering if it was through this door the assassin had entered on his roundabout course to the library but mr gryce seemingly observant of my glance though his own was fixed upon the chandelier made haste to remark as if in reply to the inquiry in my face found locked on the inside may have come that way and may not We don't pretend to say. Observing now the bed was undisturbed in its arrangement, I remarked he had not retired then. No, the tragedy must be ten hours old. Time for the murderer to have studied the situation, and provided for all contingencies. The murderer? Whom do you suspect? I whispered. He looked impassively at the ring on my finger every one and nobody it is not for me to suspect but to detect and dropping the curtain into its former position he led me from the room the coroner's inquest being now in session i felt a strong desire to be present so requesting mr gryce to inform the ladies that mr veeley was absent from town and that i had come as his substitute to render them any assistance they might require on so melancholy an occasion I proceeded to the large parlour below, and took my seat among the various persons there assembled. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 of The Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 The Coroner's Inquest THE BABY FIGURE OF THE GIANT MASS OF THINGS TO COME Troilus and Cressida For a few minutes I sat dazed by the sudden flood of light greeting me from the many open windows. Then, as the strongly contrasting features of the scene before me began to impress themselves upon my consciousness, I found myself experiencing something of the same sensation of double personality which years before had followed an enforced use of ether as at that time i appeared to be living two lives at once in two distinct places with two separate sets of incidents going on so now i seem to be divided between two irreconcilable trains of thought the gorgeous house its elaborate furnishings the little glimpses of yesterday's life as seen in the open piano with its sheet music held in place by a lady's fan occupying my attention fully as much as the aspect of the throng of incongruous and impatient people huddled about me. Perhaps one reason of this lay in the extraordinary splendour of the room I was in—the glow of satin, glitter of bronze, and glimmer of marble meeting the eye at every turn. But I am rather inclined to think it was mainly due to the force and eloquence of a certain picture which confronted me from the opposite wall—a sweet picture sweet enough and poetic enough to have been conceived by the most idealistic of artists simple too the vision of a young flaxen-haired blue-eyed coquette dressed in the costume of the first empire standing in a wood path looking back over her shoulder at some one following yet with such a dash of something not altogether saint-like in the corners of her meek eyes and baby-like lips that it impressed me with the individuality of life. Had it not been for the open dress with its waist almost beneath the armpits, the hair cut short on the forehead and the perfection of the neck and shoulders, I should have taken it for a literal portrait of one of the ladies of the house. As it was, I could not rid myself of the idea that one, if not both, of Mr. Leavenworth's nieces looked down upon me from the eyes of this entrancing blonde with the beckoning glance and forbidding hand. So vividly did this fancy impress me that I half shuddered as I looked wondering if this sweet creature did not know what had occurred in this house since the happy yesterday, and if so how she could stand there smiling so invitingly, when suddenly I became aware that I had been watching the little crowd of men about me, with as complete an absorption as if nothing else in the room had attracted my attention. That the face of the coroner, sternly intelligent and attentive, was as distinctly imprinted upon my mind as that of this lovely picture, or the clearer cut and more noble features of the sculptured psyche, shining in mellow beauty from the crimson-hung window at his right. Yes, even that the various countenances of the jurymen clustered before me, commonplace and insignificant as most of them were, the trembling forms of the excited servants crowded into a far corner, and the still more disagreeable aspect of the pale-faced, seedy reporter, seated at a small table and writing with a ghoul-like avidity that made my flesh creep, were each and all as fixed an element in the remarkable scene before me as the splendour of the surroundings. "'which made their presence such a nightmare of discord and unreality. "'I have spoken of the coroner. "'As fortune would have it, he was no stranger to me. "'I had not only seen him before, but had held frequent conversation with him, "'in fact knew him. "'His name was Hammond, and he was universally regarded "'as a man of more than ordinary acuteness, "'fully capable of conducting an important examination "'with the necessary skill and address.' interested as i was or rather was likely to be in this particular inquiry i could not but congratulate myself upon our good fortune in having so intelligent a coroner as for his jurymen they were as i have intimated very much like all other bodies of a similar character picked up at random from the streets but from such streets as the fifth and sixth avenues they presented much the same appearance of average intelligence and refinement as might be seen in the chance occupants of one of our city stages. Indeed, I marked but one amongst them all who seemed to take any interest in the inquiry as an inquiry, all the rest appearing to be actuated in the fulfilment of their duty by the commoner instincts of pity and indignation. Dr. Maynard, the well-known surgeon of 36th Street, was the first witness called his testimony concerned the nature of the wound found in the murdered man's head as some of the facts presented by him are likely to prove of importance to us in our narrative i will proceed to give a synopsis of what he said prefacing his remarks with some account of himself and the manner in which he had been summoned to the house by one of the servants he went on to state that upon his arrival he found the deceased lying on a bed in the second storey front room with the blood clotted about a pistol wound in the back of the head, having evidently been carried there from the adjoining apartment some hours after death. It was the only wound discovered on the body, and having probed it, he had found and extracted the bullet which he now handed to the jury. It was lying in the brain, having entered at the base of the skull, passed obliquely upward, and at once struck the medulla oblongata, causing instant death the fact of the ball having entered the brain in this peculiar manner he deemed worthy of note since it would produce not only instantaneous death but an utterly motionless one further from the position of the bullet-hole and the direction taken by the bullet it was manifestly impossible that the shot should have been fired by the man himself even if the condition of the hair about the wound did not completely demonstrate the fact that the shot was fired from a point some three or four feet distant. Still further, considering the angle at which the bullet had entered the skull, it was evident that the deceased must not only have been seated at the time, a fact about which there could be no dispute, but he must also have been engaged in some occupation which drew his head forward for in order that a ball should enter the head of a man sitting erect at the angle seen here of forty-five degrees it would be necessary not only for the pistol to be held very low down but in a peculiar position while if the head had been bent forward as in the act of writing, a man holding a pistol naturally with the elbow bent might very easily fire a ball into the brain at the angle observed Upon being questioned in regard to the bodily health of Mr. Leavenworth, he replied that the deceased appeared to have been in good condition at the time of his death, but that not being his attendant physician he could not speak conclusively upon the subject without further examination, and to the remark of a juryman observed that he had not seen pistol or weapon lying upon the floor, or indeed anywhere else in either of the above-mentioned rooms. I might as well add here that he afterwards stated, that from the position of the table, the chair, and the door behind it, the murderer, in order to satisfy all the conditions imposed by the situation, must have stood upon, or just within, the threshold of the passageway leading into the room beyond. Also, that as the ball was small, and from a rifled barrel, and thus especially liable to deflections while passing through bones and integuments, it seemed to him evident that the victim had made no effort to raise or turn his head when advanced upon by his destroyer, the fearful conclusion being that the footstep was an accustomed one, and the presence of its possessor in the room either known or expected. The physician's testimony being ended, the coroner picked up the bullet which had been laid on the table before him, and for a moment rolled it contemplatively between his fingers, then drawing a pencil from his pocket, hastily scrawled a line or two on a piece of paper, and, calling an officer to his side, delivered some command in a low tone. The officer, taking up the slip, looked at it for an instant knowingly, then, catching up his hat, left the room. Another moment, and the front door closed on him, and a wild halloo from the crowd of urchins without, told of his appearance in the street. Sitting where I did, I had a full view of the corner, Looking out, I saw the officer stop there, hail a cab, hastily enter it, and disappear in the direction of Broadway. End of Chapter Two. Chapter Three of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three facts and deductions confusion now hath made his masterpiece most sacrilegious murder hath broke ope the lord's anointed temple and stolen thence the life of the building macbeth turning my attention back into the room where i was i found the coroner consulting a memorandum through a very impressive pair of gold eyeglasses is the butler here He asked. Immediately there was a stir among the group of servants in the corner, and an intelligent-looking, though somewhat pompous, Irishman stepped out from their midst and confronted the jury. Ah! thought I to myself, as my glance encountered his precise whiskers, steady-eye and respectfully attentive, though by no means humble, expression. Here is a model servant, who is likely to prove a model witness. And I was not mistaken. Thomas the butler was, in all respects, one in a thousand, and he knew it. The coroner, upon whom, as upon all others in the room, he seemed to have made the like favourable impression, proceeded without hesitation to interrogate him. "'Your name, I am told, is Thomas Doherty?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Well, Thomas, how long have you been employed in your present situation?' "'It must be a matter of two years now, sir.' You are the person who first discovered the body of Mr. Leavenworth? Yes, sir. I and Mr. Harwell. And who is Mr. Harwell? Mr. Harwell is Mr. Leavenworth's private secretary, sir, the one who did his writing. Very good. Now, at what time of the day or night did you make this discovery? It was early, sir. Early this morning, about eight. And where? In the library, sir. Of Mr. Leavenworth's bedroom. We had forced our way in, feeling anxious about his not coming to breakfast. You forced your way in? The door was locked, then? Yes, sir. On the inside? That I cannot tell. There was no key in the door. Where was Mr. Leavenworth lying when you first found him? He was not lying, sir. He was seated at the large table in the centre of the room, his back to the bedroom door, leaning forward, his head on his hands. How was he dressed? In his dinner suit, sir, just as he came from the table last night. Were there any evidences in the room that his struggle had taken place? No, sir. Any pistol on the floor or table? No, sir. Any reason to suppose that a robbery had been attempted? No, sir. Mr. Leavenworth's watch and purse were both in his pockets. Being asked to mention who were in the house at the time of the discovery, he replied, The young ladies, uh, Miss Mary Leavenworth and Miss Eleanor, uh, Mr. Harwell, Kate the cook, Molly the upstairs girl, and myself. The usual members of the household? Yes, sir. Now, TELL ME WHOSE DUTY IT IS TO CLOSE UP THE HOUSE AT NIGHT. mine, SIR. DID YOU SECURE IT AS USUAL LAST NIGHT? I DID, SIR. WHO UNFASTENED IT THIS MORNING? I, SIR. HOW DID YOU FIND IT? JUST AS I LEFT IT. WHAT, NOT A WINDOW OPEN, NOR A DOOR UNLOCKED? NO, SIR. BY THIS TIME YOU COULD HAVE HEARD A PIN-DROP. The certainty that the murderer, whoever he was, had not left the house, at least till after it was opened in the morning, seemed to weigh upon all minds. Forewarned as I had been of the fact, I could not but feel a certain degree of emotion at having it thus brought before me, and, moving so as to bring the butler's face within view, searched it for some secret token that he had spoken thus emphatically, in order to cover up some failure of duty on his own part. But it was unmoved in its candour, and sustained the concentrated gaze of all in the room like a rock. Being now asked when he had last seen Mr. Leavenworth alive, he replied, "'At dinner last night.' "'He was, however, seen later by some of you?' "'Yes, sir,' Mr. Harwell says. He saw him as late as half-past ten in the evening. "'What room do you occupy in this house?' A little one on the basement floor. And where do the other members of the household sleep? Mostly on the third floor, sir. The ladies in the large back rooms, and Mr. Harwell in the little one in the front. The girls sleep above. There was no one on the same floor with Mr. Leavenworth? No, sir. At what hour did you go to bed? Well, I should say about eleven. "'Did you hear any noise in the house, either before or after that time, that you remember?' "'No, sir.' "'So that the discovery you made this morning was a surprise to you?' "'Yes, sir.' Requested now to give a more detailed account of that discovery, he went on to say that it was not till Mr. Leavenworth failed to come to his breakfast at the call of the bell that any suspicion arose in the house that all was not right.' Even then they waited some little time before doing anything, but as minute after minute went by, and he did not come, Miss Eleanor grew anxious, and finally left the room, saying she would go and see what was the matter, but soon returned, looking very much frightened, saying she had knocked at her uncle's door, and had even called to him, but could get no answer, at which Mr. Harwell and himself had gone up and together tried both doors, and finding them locked burst open that of the library, when they came upon Mr. Leavenworth, as he had already said, sitting at the table, dead. "'And the ladies?' "'Oh, they followed us up and came into the room, and Miss Eleanor fainted away.' "'And the other one, Miss Mary, I believe they call her?' "'I don't remember anything about her. I was so busy fetching water to restore Miss Eleanor, I didn't notice.' Well, how long was it before Mr. Leavenworth was carried into the next room? Almost immediate, as soon as Miss Eleanor recovered, and that was as soon as ever the water touched her lips. Who proposed that the body should be carried from the spot? She, sir. As soon as ever she stood up she went over to it, and looked at it, and shuddered, and and then calling Mr. Harwell and me, bade us carry him in and lay him on the bed, and go for the doctor, which we did wait a moment did she go with you when you went into the other room no sir what did she do she stayed by the library table what doing i couldn't see her back was to me how long did she stay there she was gone when we came back gone from the table gone from the room When did you see her again?" "'In a minute. She came in at the library door as we went out.' "'Anything in her hand?' "'Not as I see.' "'Did you miss anything from the table?' "'I never thought to look, sir. The table was nothing to me. I was only thinking of going for the doctor, though I knew it was of no use.' Whom did you leave in the room when you went out the cook sir and Molly sir and Miss Eleanor not Miss Mary, no sir, very well, Have the jury any questions to put to this man? A movement at once took place in that profound body. I should like to ask a few exclaimed a weazen-faced, excitable little man, whom I had before noticed shifting in his seat in a restless manner, strongly suggestive of an intense but hitherto repressed desire to interrupt the proceedings. "'Very well, sir,' returned Thomas. But the juryman, stopping to draw a deep breath, a large and decidedly pompous man who sat at his right hand seized the opportunity to inquire, in a round, listen-to-me sort of voice you say you have been in the family for two years what was it you might call a united family united affectionate you know on good terms with each other and the juryman lifted the very long and heavy watch-chain that hung across his vest as if that as well as himself had a right to a suitable and well-considered reply the butler impressed perhaps by his manner glanced uneasily around. "'Yes, sir, so far as I know.' "'The young ladies were attached to their uncle?' "'Oh, yes, sir.' "'And to each other?' "'Well, yes, I suppose so. It's not for me to say.' "'You suppose so. Have you any reason to think otherwise?' and he doubled the watch-chain about his fingers as if he would double its attention as well as his own thomas hesitated a moment but just as his interlocutor was about to repeat his question he drew himself up into rather a stiff and formal attitude and replied well no sir the juryman for all his self-assertion seemed to respect the reticence of a servant who declined to give his opinion in regard to such a matter and, drawing complacently back, signified with a wave of his hand that he had no more to say. Immediately the excitable little man before mentioned slipped forward to the edge of his chair, and asked, this time without hesitation, "'At what time did you unfasten the house this morning?' "'About six, sir.' "'Now, could anyone leave the house after that time without your knowledge?' Thomas glanced a trifle uneasily at his fellow-servants, but answered up promptly and as if without reserve i don't think it would be possible for anybody to leave this house after six in the morning without either myself or the cook's knowing of it folks don't jump from second-story windows in broad daylight and as to leaving by the doors the front door closes with such a slam all the house can hear it from top to bottom and as for the back door no one goes out of that can get clear of the yard without going by the kitchen window and no one can go by our kitchen window without the cooks a-seeing of them that i can just swear to and he cast a half-quizzing half-malicious look at the round red-faced individual in question strongly suggestive of late and unforgotten bickerings over the kitchen coffee-urn and castor this reply which was of a nature calculated to deepen the forebodings which had already settled upon the minds of those present "'produced a visible effect. "'The house found locked, and no one seen to leave it. "'Evidently, then, we had not far to look for the assassin.' "'Shifting on his chair with increased fervour, if I may so speak, "'the juryman glanced sharply round. "'But, perceiving the renewed interest in the faces about him, "'declined to weaken the effect of the last admission by any further questions.' settling therefore comfortably back he left the field open for any other juror who might choose to press the inquiry but no one seeming to be ready to do this thomas in his turn evinced impatience and at last looking respectfully around inquired would any other gentleman like to ask me anything no one replying he threw a hurried glance of relief towards the servants at his side then while each one marvelled at the sudden change that had taken place in his countenance withdrew with an eager clarity, and evident satisfaction, for which I could not at the moment account. But the next witness, proving to be none other than my acquaintance of the morning, Mr. Harwell, I soon forgot both Thomas and the doubts his last movement had awakened, in the interest which the examination of so important a person as the secretary and right-hand man of Mr. Leavenworth was likely to create. Advancing with the calm and determined air of one who realised that life and death itself might hang upon his words, Mr. Harwell took his stand before the jury with a degree of dignity not only highly prepossessing in itself, but to me, who had not been over and above pleased with him in our first interview, admirable and surprising, lacking, as I have said, any distinctive quality of face or form agreeable or otherwise, being what you might call in appearance a negative sort of person, his pale regular features, dark, well-smoothed hair and simple whiskers, all belonging to a recognised type and very commonplace, there was still visible, on this occasion at least, a certain self-possession in his carriage, which went far towards making up for the want of impressiveness in his countenance and expression. Not that even this was in any way remarkable. Indeed, there was nothing remarkable about the man any more than there is about a thousand others you meet every day on Broadway, unless you accept the look of concentration and solemnity which pervaded his whole person, a solemnity which at this time would not have been noticeable, perhaps if it had not appeared to be the habitual expression of one who in his short life had seen more of sorrow than joy, less of pleasure than care and anxiety. The coroner, to whom his appearance, one way or the other, seemed to be a matter of no moment, addressed him immediately and without reserve. Your name? James Truman Harwell. Your business? I have occupied the position of Private Secretary and amanuensis to Mr. Leavenworth for the past eight months. You are the person who last saw Mr. Leavenworth alive, are you not? The young man raised his head with a haughty gesture, which well-nigh transfigured it. Certainly not, as I am not the man who killed him." The answer which seemed to introduce something akin to levity or badinage into an examination, the seriousness of which we were all beginning to realise, produced an immediate revulsion of feeling towards the man, who in face of facts revealed, and to be revealed, could so lightly make use of it. A hum of disapproval swept through the room, and in that one remark James Harwell, lost all that he had previously won by the self-possession of his bearing, and the unflinching regard of his eye. He seemed himself to realise this, for he lifted his head still higher, though his general aspect remained unchanged. "'I mean,' the coroner exclaimed evidently nettled, that the young man had been able to draw such a conclusion from his words, "'that you were the last one to see him previous to his assassination by some unknown individual.' The secretary folded his arms. Whether to hide a certain tremble which had seized him, or by that simple action to gain time for a moment's further thought, I could not then determine. "'Sir,' he replied at length, "'I cannot answer yes or no to that question. In all probability I was the last to see him in good health and spirits, but in a house as large as this I cannot be sure of even so simple a fact as that.' Then, observing the unsatisfied look on the faces around, added slowly, "'It is my business to see him late.' "'Your business? Oh, as his secretary, I suppose?' he gravely nodded. "'Mr. Harwell,' the coroner went on, "'the office of private secretary in this country is not a common one. Will you explain to us what your duties were in that capacity?' In short, what use Mr. Leavenworth had for such an assistant, and how he employed you?' "'Certainly. Mr. Leavenworth was, as you perhaps know, a man of great wealth, connected with various societies, clubs, institutions, etc. Besides being known far and near as a giving man, he was accustomed every day of his life to receive numerous letters, begging and otherwise, which it was my business to open and answer.' his private correspondence always bearing a mark upon it which distinguished it from the rest but this was not all i was expected to do having in his early life been engaged in the tea trade he had made more than one voyage to china and was consequently much interested in the question of international communication between that country and our own thinking that in his various visits there he had learned much which if known to the american people would conduce to our better understanding of the nation, its peculiarities, and the best manner of dealing with it, he has been engaged for some time in writing a book on the subject, which, same, it has been my business for the last eight months to assist him in preparing, by writing at his dictation three hours out of the twenty-four, the last hour being commonly taken from the evening, say from half-past nine to half-past ten, "'Mr. Leavenworth being a very methodical man, "'and accustomed to regulate his own life "'and that of those about him "'with almost mathematical precision. "'You say you were accustomed to write "'at his dictation evenings. "'Did you do this as usual last evening?' "'I did, sir.' "'What can you tell us of his manner "'and appearance at the time? "'Were they in any way unusual?' "'A frown crossed the secretary's brow.' AS HE PROBABLY HAD NO PREMONITION OF HIS DOOM, WHY SHOULD THERE HAVE BEEN ANY CHANGE IN HIS MANNER? THIS GIVING THE CORONER AN OPPORTUNITY TO REVENGE HIMSELF FOR HIS DISCOMFITURE OF A MOMENT BEFORE, HE SAID SOMEWHAT SEVERELY, IT IS THE BUSINESS OF A WITNESS TO ANSWER QUESTIONS, NOT TO put THEM. THE SECRETARY FLUSHED, AND THE ACCOUNT STOOD EVEN. "'Very well, then, sir. If Mr. Leavenworth felt any forebodings of his end he did not reveal them to me. On the contrary, he seemed to be more absorbed in his work than usual. One of the last words he said to me was, "'In a month we will have this book in press, eh, Truman?' I remember this particularly, as he was filling his wine-glass at the time." He always drank one glass of wine before retiring, it being my duty to bring the decanter of sherry from the closet, the last thing before leaving him. I was standing with my hand on the knob of the hall-door, but advanced as he said this, and replied, "'I hope so indeed, Mr. Leavenworth.' "'Then join me in drinking a glass of sherry,' said he, motioning me to procure another glass from the closet. I did so, and he poured me out the wine with his own hand.' i am not especially fond of sherry but the occasion was a pleasant one and i drained my glass i remember being slightly ashamed of doing so for mr leavenworth set his down half full it was half full when we found him this morning do what he would and being a reserved man he appeared anxious to control his emotion the horror of his first shock seemed to overwhelm him here pulling his handkerchief from his pocket he wiped his forehead "'Gentlemen, that is the last action of Mr. Leavenworth I ever saw. "'As he set the glass down on the table, I said good-night to him, and left the room.' The coroner, with a characteristic imperviousness to all expressions of emotion, leaned back and surveyed the young man with a scrutinising glance. "'And where did you go then?' he asked. "'To my own room.' "'Did you meet anybody on the way?' "'No, sir.' "'Hear anything, or see anything unusual?' The secretary's voice fell a trifle. "'No, sir.' "'Mr. Harwell, think again. "'Are you ready to swear that you neither met anybody, "'heard anybody, nor saw anything "'which lingers yet in your memory as unusual?' "'His face grew quite distressed. "'Twice he opened his lips to speak, "'and as often closed them without doing so. "'At last, with an effort, he replied— I saw one thing, a little thing, too slight to mention, but it was unusual, and I could not help thinking of it when you spoke." "'What was it?' "'Only a door half-open.' "'Whose door?' "'Miss Eleanor Leavenworth's.' His voice was almost a whisper now. "'Where were you when you observed this fact?' "'I cannot say exactly. "'Probably at my own door, as I did not stop on the way. "'If this frightful occurrence had not taken place, "'I should never have thought of it again. "'When you went into your room, did you close your door?' "'I did, sir.' "'How soon did you retire?' "'Immediately.' "'Did you hear nothing before you fell asleep?' "'Again that indefinable hesitation.' "'Barely nothing.' "'Not a footstep in the hall?' I might have heard a footstep. Did you? I cannot swear I did. Do you think you did? Yes, I think I did. To tell the whole, I remember hearing, just as I was falling into a doze, a a rustle and a footstep in the hall, but it made no impression upon me, and, and I dropped asleep. Well? Some time later I woke woke suddenly as if something had startled me, but what, a noise or move, I cannot say. I remember rising up in my bed and looking round, but hearing nothing further, soon yielded to the drowsiness which possessed me, and fell into a deep sleep. I did not wake again till morning. Here requested to relate how and when he became acquainted with the fact of the murder, he substantiated, in all particulars, the account of the matter already given by the butler which, subject being exhausted, the coroner went on to ask if he had noted the condition of the library table after the body had been removed. Somewhat, yes, sir. What was on it? The usual properties, sir. Books, paper, a pen with the ink dried on it, uh, besides the decanter and the wine-glass from which he drank the night before. Nothing more? I remember nothing more. "'In regard to that decanter and glass,' broke in the juryman of the watch-and-chain, "'did you not say that the latter was found in the same condition in which you saw it at the time you left Mr. Leavenworth sitting in his library?' "'Yes, sir, very much.' "'Yet he was in the habit of drinking a full glass?' "'Yes, sir.' "'An interruption must then have ensued very close upon your departure, Mr. Harwell.' A cold, bluish pallor suddenly broke out upon the young man's face. He started, and for a moment looked as if struck by some horrible thought. "'That does not follow, sir,' he articulated with some difficulty. "'Mr. Leavenworth might—' But suddenly stopped, as if too much distressed to proceed. "'Go on, Mr. Arwell, let us hear what you have to say.' "'There is nothing.' He returned faintly, as if battling with some strong emotion. As he had not been answering a question, only volunteering an explanation, the coroner let it pass, but I saw more than one pair of eyes roll suspiciously from side to side, as if many there felt that some sort of clue had been offered them in this man's emotion. The coroner, ignoring in his easy way both the emotion and the universal excitement it had produced, now proceeded to ask, "'Do you know whether the key to the library "'was in its place when you left the room last night?' "'No, sir, I did not notice.' "'The presumption is it was?' "'I suppose so.' "'At all events the door was locked in the morning "'and the key gone?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Then whoever committed this murder "'locked the door on passing out "'and took away the key?' "'It would seem so.' The coroner, turning, faced the jury with an earnest look. "'Gentlemen,' said he, "'there seems to be a mystery in regard to this key which must be looked into.' Immediately a universal murmur swept through the room, testifying to the acquiescence of all present. The little juryman, hastily rising, proposed that an instant search should be made for it, but the coroner, turning upon him with what I should denominate as a quelling look, decided that the inquest should proceed in the usual manner, till the verbal testimony was all in. "'Then allow me to ask a question,' again volunteered the irrepressible. "'Mr. Harwell, we are told that upon the breaking in of the library door this morning, Mr. Leavenworth's two nieces followed you into the room.' "'One of them, sir, Miss Eleanor.' "'Is Miss Eleanor the one who is said to be Mr. Leavenworth's sole heiress?' "'the coroner here interposed. "'No, sir, that is Miss Mary.' "'That she gave orders,' pursued the juryman, "'for the removal of the body into the further room?' "'Yes, sir.' "'And that you obeyed her by helping to carry it in?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Now, in thus passing through the rooms, "'did you observe anything to lead you "'to form a suspicion of the murderer?' "'The secretary shook his head.' "'I have no suspicion,' he emphatically said. Somehow I did not believe him. Whether it was the tone of his voice, the clutch of his hand on his sleeve—and the hand will often reveal more than the countenance—I felt that this man was not to be relied upon in making this assertion. "'I should like to ask Mr. Harwell a question,' said a juryman, who had not yet spoken. "'We have had a detailed account of what looks like the discovery of a murdered man.' "'Now, murder is never committed without some motive. "'Does the secretary know whether Mr. Leavenworth had any secret enemy?' "'I do not.' "'Everyone in the house seemed to be on good terms with him.' "'Yes, sir,' with a little quaver of dissent in the assertion, however. "'Not a shadow lay between him and any other members of his household, so far as you know.' "'I am not ready to say that.' He returned, quite distressed. "'A shadow is a very slight thing. There might have been a shadow.' "'Between him and whom?' A long hesitation. "'One of his nieces, sir.' "'Which one?' Again that defiant lift of the head. "'Miss Eleanor. How long has the shadow been observable?' "'I cannot say.' "'You do not know that cause?' "'I do not.' "'Nor the extent of the feeling?' "'No, sir.' "'You open Mr. Leavenworth's letters?' "'I do.' "'Has there been anything in his correspondence of late calculated to throw any light upon this deed?' It actually seemed as if he never would answer. Was he simply pondering over his reply, or was the man turned to stone? "'Mr. Harwell.' "'Did you hear the juryman?' inquired the coroner. "'Yes, sir, I was thinking. "'Very well. Now answer.' "'Sir,' he replied, turning and looking the juryman full in the face, and in that way revealing his unguarded left hand to my gaze, "'I have opened Mr. Leavenworth's letters as usual for the last two weeks, and I can think of nothing in them bearing in the least upon this tragedy.' The man lied. I knew it instantly. The clenched hand pausing irresolute, then making up its mind to go through with the lie firmly, was enough for me. "'Mr. Harwell, this is undoubtedly true according to your judgment,' said the coroner. "'But Mr. Leavenworth's correspondence will have to be searched for all that.' "'Of course,' he replied carelessly. "'That is only right.' This remark ended Mr. Harwell's examination for the time. As he sat down, I made note of four things— that mr howell himself for some reason not given was conscious of a suspicion which he was anxious to suppress even from his own mind that a woman was in some way connected with it a rustle as well as a footstep having been heard by him on the stairs that a letter had arrived at the house which if found would be likely to throw some light upon this subject that Eleanor leavenworth's name came with difficulty from his lips this evidently unimpressible man manifesting more or less emotion whenever he was called upon to utter it. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of The Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. CHAPTER Four, A. CUTS SOMETHING IS ROTTEN IN THE STATE OF DENMARK. HAMLET The cook of the establishment being now called, that portly, ruddy-faced individual stepped forward with a clarity, displaying upon her good-humoured countenance such an expression of mingled eagerness and anxiety that more than one person present found it difficult to restrain a smile at her appearance. Observing this and taking it as a compliment, being a woman as well as a cook, she immediately dropped a curtsey and, opening her lips, was about to speak, when the coroner, rising impatiently in his seat, took the word from her mouth by saying sternly, "'Your name?' "'Catherine Malone, sir.' "'Well, Catherine, how long have you been in Mr. Leavenworth's service?' "'Sure, it's a good 12 months now, sir.' since i came on mrs wilson's recommendation uh, to that very front door and-never mind the front door but tell us why you left this mrs wilson uh, sure only uh, it was she has left me being as she went sailing to the old country the same day when on her recommendation i came to this very front door well well no matter about that you have been in mr leavenworth's family a year yes sir and liked it found him a good master oh sir never have i found a better a worse look to the villain as killed him he was that free and generous sir that many's the time i have said to hannah she stopped with a sudden comical gasp of terror looking at her fellow-servants like one who had incautiously made a slip the coroner observing this inquired hastily hannah who is hannah the cook drawing her roly-poly figure up into some sort of shape in her efforts to appear unconcerned exclaimed boldly, uh, "'She—oh, only the lady's maid, sir.' "'But I don't see any one here answering that description. You didn't speak of any one by the name of Hannah as belonging to the house?' said he, turning to Thomas. "'No, sir,' the latter replied, with a bow and a sidelong look at the red-cheeked girl at his side. "'You asked me who were in the house at the time the murder was discovered, and I told you.' "'Oh!' cried the coroner, satirically. "'Used to police courts, I see.' Then, turning back to the cook, who had all this while been rolling her eyes in a vague fright about the room, inquired, "'And where is this Hannah?' "'Sure, sir, she's gone.' "'How long since?' The cook caught a breath hysterically. "'Since last night.' "'What time last night?' "'Truth, sir, I don't know. I don't know anything about it.' "'Was she dismissed?' "'Not as I knows on. Her clothes is here.' "'Oh, her clothes are here. At what hour did you miss her?' "'I didn't miss her. She was here last night, and she wasn't here this morning, and so I says she's gone.' "'Hm!' cried the coroner, casting a slow glance down the room, while everyone present looked as if a door had suddenly opened in a closed wall. Where did this girl sleep?" The cook, who had been fumbling uneasily with her apron, looked up. "'Sure, we all sleeps at the top of the house, sir.' "'In one room?' Slowly. "'Yes, sir.' "'Did she come up to the room last night?' "'Yes, sir.' "'At what hour?' Uh, "'Er—sure, it was ten when we all came up. I heard the clock a-striking.' did you observe anything unusual in her appearance she had a toothache sir oh a toothache what then tell me all she did but at this the cook broke into tears and wails sure she didn't do nothing sir it wasn't her sir as did anything don't you believe it hannah's a good girl and honest sir as ever you see i'm ready to swear on the book as how she never put her hand to the lock of his door "'What should she for? "'She only went down to Miss Eleanor for some toothache drops. "'Her face was paining her awful. "'And oh, sir—' "'There, there,' interrupted the coroner. "'I am not accusing Hannah of anything. "'I only asked you what she did after she reached your room.' "'She went downstairs, you say. "'How long after you went up?' Troth, sir, I couldn't tell. "'But Molly says—' "'Never mind what Molly says.' You didn't see her go down? No, sir. Nor see her come back? No, sir. Nor see her this morning? Uh, No, sir. How could I when she's gone? But you did see, last night, that she seemed to be suffering with toothache? Yes, sir. Very well. Now, tell me how and when you first became acquainted with the fact of Mr. Leavenworth's death. But her replies to this question, while over-garrulous, contained but little information, and seeing this the coroner was on the point of dismissing her, when the little juror, remembering an admission she had made of having seen Miss Eleanor Leavenworth coming out of the library door a few minutes after Mr. Leavenworth's body had been carried into the next room, asked if her mistress had anything in her hand at the time. "'I don't know, sir.' "'Faith!' she suddenly exclaimed i believe she did have a piece of paper i recollect now seeing her put it in her pocket the next witness was molly the upstairs girl molly o Flanagan, as she called herself was a rosy-cheeked black-haired pert girl of about eighteen who under ordinary circumstances would have found herself able to answer with a due degree of smartness any question which might have been addressed to her but fright will sometimes cower the stoutest heart and Molly, standing before the coroner at this juncture, presented anything but a reckless appearance, her naturally rosy cheeks blanching at the first word addressed to her, and her head falling forward on her breast, in a confusion too genuine to be dissembled, and too transparent to be misunderstood. As her testimony related mostly to Hannah, and what she knew of her, and her remarkable disappearance, I shall confine myself to a mere synopsis of it. As far as she, Molly, knew, Hannah was what she had given herself out to be, an uneducated girl of Irish extraction, who had come from the country to act as lady's maid and seamstress to the two Mrs. Leavenworth. She had been in the family for some time, before Molly herself, in fact, and though by nature remarkably reticent, refusing to tell anything about herself or her past life, she had managed to become a great favourite with all in the house but she was of a melancholy nature and fond of brooding, often getting up nights to sit and think in the dark. "'As if she was a lady!' exclaimed Molly. This habit being a singular one for a girl in her station, an attempt was made to win from the witness further particulars in regard to it, but Molly, with a toss of her head, confined herself to the one statement. She used to get up nights and sit in the window, and that was all she knew about it. Drawn away from this topic, during the consideration of which, a little of the sharpness of Molly's disposition had asserted itself, she went on to state, in connection with the events of the past night, that Hannah had been ill for two days or more, with a swelled face, that it grew so bad after they had gone upstairs, the night before, that she had got out of bed, and dressing herself—Molly was closely questioned here, but insisted upon the fact that Hannah had fully dressed herself, even to arranging her collar and ribbon lighted a candle, and made known her intention of going down to Miss Eleanor for aid. "'Why, Miss Eleanor?' a juryman here asked. "'Oh, she is the one who always gives out medicines and such like to the servants.' Urged to proceed, she went on to state that she had already told all she knew about it. Hannah did not come back, nor was she to be found in the house at breakfast-time. "'You say she took the candle with her?' said the coroner. Was it in a candlestick? No, sir. Loose-like. Why did she take a candle? Does not Mr. Leavenworth burn gas in his halls? Yes, sir, but we put the gas out as we go up, and Hannah is afraid of the dark. If she took a candle, it must be lying somewhere about the house. Now, has anybody seen a stray candle? Not as I knows on, sir. Is this it? exclaimed a voice over my shoulder. It was Mr. Gryce, and he was holding up, into view, a half-burned paraffin candle. "'Yes, sir. law. where did you find it?' "'In the grass of the carriage-yard. Halfway from the kitchen-door to the street,' he quietly returned. Sensation! A clue, then, at last! Something had been found which seemed to connect this mysterious murder with the outside world.' instantly the back door assumed the chief position of interest the candle found lying in the yard seemed to prove not only that hannah had left the house shortly after descending from her room but had left it by the back door which we now remembered was only a few steps from the iron gate opening into the side street but thomas being recalled repeated his assertion that not only the back door but all the lower windows of the house had been found by him securely locked and bolted at six o'clock that morning. Inevitable conclusion, someone had locked and bolted them after the girl. Who? Alas, that had now become the very serious and momentous question. End of chapter 4 CHAPTER Five. Of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five. Expert Testimony And oftentimes to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness tell us truths, win us with honest trifles, to betray us in deepest consequence. Macbeth In the midst of the universal gloom thus awakened, there came a sharp ring at the bell. Instantly all eyes turned towards the parlour door, just as it slowly opened, and the officer who had been sent off so mysteriously by the coroner an hour before entered, in company with a young man, whose sleek appearance, intelligent eye, and general air of trustworthiness seemed to proclaim him to be, what in fact he was, the confidential clerk of a responsible mercantile house advancing without apparent embarrassment though each and every eye in the room was fixed upon him with lively curiosity he made a slight bow to the coroner you have sent for a man from bone and co he said strong and immediate excitement bone and co was the well-known pistol and ammunition store of broadway yes sir returned the coroner we have here a bullet which we must ask you to examine. You are fully acquainted with all matters connected with your business.' The young man, merely elevating an expressive eyebrow, took the bullet carelessly in his hand. "'Can you tell us from what make of pistol that was delivered?' The young man rolled it slowly round between his thumb and forefinger, and then laid it down. "'It's a number 32 ball, usually sold with the small pistol made by Smith & Wesson.' "'A small pistol!' exclaimed the butler, jumping up from his seat. "'Master used to keep a little pistol in his stand-drawer. "'I've often seen it. We all knew about it.' Great and irrepressible excitement, especially among the servants. "'That's so!' I heard a heavy voice exclaim. "'I once saw it myself. Master was cleaning it.' It was the cook who spoke. "'In his stand-drawer?' the coroner inquired. "'Yes, sir. At the head of his bed.' An officer was sent to examine the stand drawer. In a few moments he returned, bringing a small pistol, which he laid down on the coroner's table, saying, "'Here it is.' Immediately everyone sprang to his feet, but the coroner, handing it over to the clerk from Bones, inquired if that was the make before mentioned. Without hesitation he replied, "'Yes, Smith and Wesson, you can see for yourself.' And he proceeded to examine it. "'Where did you find this pistol?' asked the coroner of the officer. In the top drawer of a shaving-table standing near the head of Mr. Leavenworth's bed it was lying in a velvet case together with a box of cartridges, one of which I bring as a sample. And he laid it down beside the bullet. Was the drawer locked? Yes, sir, but the key was not taken out. Interest had now reached its climax. A universal cry swept through the room. Is it loaded? The coroner, frowning on the assembly, "'with a look of great dignity, remarked, "'I was about to ask that question myself, "'but first I must request order.' "'An immediate calm followed. "'Everyone was too much interested to interpose any obstacle "'in the way of gratifying his curiosity. "'Now, sir!' exclaimed the coroner. "'The clerk from Bones, taking out the cylinder, held it up. "'There are seven chambers here, and they are all loaded.' A murmur of disappointment followed this assertion. "'But,' he quietly added, after a momentary examination of the face of the cylinder, "'they have not all been loaded long. A bullet has been recently shot from one of these chambers.' "'How do you know?' cried one of the jury. "'How do I know?' "'Sir,' he said, turning to the coroner, "'will you be kind enough to examine the condition of this pistol?' and he handed it over to that gentleman look first at the barrel it is clean and bright and shows no evidence of a bullet having passed out of it very lately that is because it has been cleaned but now observe the face of the cylinder what do you see there i see a faint line of smut near one of the chambers just so show it to the gentleman it was immediately handed down that faint line of smut on the edge of one of the chambers is the tell-tale sirs a bullet passing out always leaves smut behind the man who fired this remembering the fact cleaned the barrel but forgot the cylinder and stepping aside he folded his arms jerusalem spoke out a rough hearty voice isn't that wonderful this exclamation came from a countryman who had stepped in from the street and now stood agape in the doorway It was a rude, but not altogether unwelcome interruption. A smile passed round the room, and both men and women breathed more easily. Order being at last restored, the officer was requested to describe the position of the stand, and its distance from the library table. The library table is in one room, and the stand in another. To reach the former from the latter, one would be obliged to cross Mr. Leavenworth's bedroom, in a diagonal direction, pass through the passageway separating that one apartment from the other, and— wait a moment how does this table stand in regard to the door which leads from the bedroom into the hall one might enter that door pass directly round the foot of the bed to the stand procure the pistol and cross half-way over to the passageway without being seen by any one sitting or standing in the library beyond holy virgin exclaimed the horrified cook throwing her apron over her head as if to shut out some dreadful vision hannah never would have had the pluck for that never never But Mr. Grice, laying a heavy hand on the woman, forced her back into her seat, reproving and calming her at the same time, with a dexterity marvellous to behold. "'I beg your pardons,' she said depreciatingly to those around. "'But it never was, Hannah, never!' The clerk from Bones here being dismissed, those assembled took the opportunity of making some change in their position, after which the name of Mr. Harwell was again called that person rose with manifest reluctance evidently the preceding testimony had either upset some theory of his or indubitably strengthened some unwelcome suspicion mr harwell the coroner began we are told of the existence of a pistol belonging to mr leavenworth and upon searching we discover it in his room did you know of his possessing such an instrument i did was it a fact generally known in the house so it would seem how was that was he in the habit of leaving it around where anyone could see it i cannot say i can only acquaint you with the manner in which i myself became aware of its existence very well do so we were once talking about firearms I have some taste that way, and have always been anxious to possess a pocket-pistol. Saying something of the kind to him one day, he rose from his seat, and fetching me this, showed it to me. How long ago was this? Some few months since. He has owned this pistol, then, for some time? Yes, sir. Is that the only occasion upon which you have ever seen it? "'No, sir,' the secretary blushed. "'I have seen it once since.' "'When?' "'About three weeks ago.' "'Under what circumstances?' The secretary dropped his head, a certain drawn look making itself suddenly visible on his countenance. "'Will you not excuse me, gentlemen?' he asked after a moment's hesitation. "'It is impossible,' returned the coroner. His face grew even more pallid and deprecatory. "'I am obliged to introduce the name of a lady,' he hesitatingly declared. "'We are very sorry,' remarked the coroner. The young man turned fiercely upon him, and I could not help wondering that I had ever thought him commonplace. "'Of Miss Eleanor Leavenworth!' he cried. At that name, so uttered, everyone started but Mr. Gryce. He was engaged in holding a close and confidential conflab with his fingertips, and did not appear to notice. "'Surely it is contrary to the rules of decorum, and the respect we all feel for the lady herself to introduce her name into this discussion,' continued Mr. Harwell, but the coroner, still insisting upon an answer, he refolded his arms, a movement indicative of resolution with him, and began in a low forced tone to say, "'It is only this, gentlemen.' One afternoon, about three weeks since, I had occasion to go to the library at an unusual hour. Crossing over to the mantelpiece for the purpose of procuring a penknife, which I had carelessly left there in the morning, I heard a noise in the adjoining room. Knowing that Mr. Leavenworth was out, and supposing the ladies to be out also, I took the liberty of ascertaining who the intruder was when what was my astonishment to come upon Miss Eleanor Leavenworth standing at the side of her uncle's bed, with his pistol in her hand. Confused at my indiscretion, I attempted to escape without being observed, but in vain, for just as I was crossing the threshold she turned, and calling me by name, requested me to explain the pistol to her. Uh, Gentlemen, in order to do so, I was obliged to take it in my hand, and that, sirs, is the only other occasion upon which I ever saw or handled the pistol of Mr. Leavenworth. Drooping his head, he waited in indescribable agitation for the next question. She asked you to explain the pistol to her. What do you mean by that? I mean, he faintly continued, catching his breath, in a vain effort to appear calm, how to load, aim, and fire it a flash of awakened feeling shot across the faces of all present. Even the coroner showed sudden signs of emotion, and sat staring at the bowed form and pale countenance of the man before him, with a peculiar look of surprised compassion, which could not fail of producing its effect, not only upon the young man himself, but upon all who saw him. "'Mr. Harwell!' he at length inquired. "'Have you anything to add to the statement you have just made?' The secretary sadly shook his head. "'Mr. Grice,' I here whispered, clutching that person by the arm and dragging him down to my side, "'assure me I entreat you, but he would not let me finish.' "'The coroner is about to ask for the young ladies,' he quickly interposed. "'If you desire to fulfil your duty towards them, be ready that's all fulfill my duty the simple words recalled me to myself what had i been thinking of was i mad with nothing more terrible in mind than a tender picture of the lovely cousins bowed in anguish over the remains of one who had been as dear as a father to them i slowly rose and upon demand being made for miss mary and miss eleanor leavenworth advanced and said that as a friend of the family a petty lie which i hope will not be laid up against me i begged the privilege of going for the ladies and escorting them down instantly a dozen eyes flashed upon me and i experienced the embarrassment of one who by some unexpected word or action has drawn upon himself the concentrated attention of a whole room but the permission sought being almost immediately accorded i was speedily enabled to withdraw from my rather trying position finding myself, almost before I knew it, in the hall, my face aflame, my heart beating with excitement, and these words of Mr. Grice ringing in my ears. Third floor, rear room, first door at the head of the stairs. You will find the young ladies expecting you. End of chapter 5 Chapter Six of the Leavenworth Case by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, Side Lights. Oh, she has beauty might ensnare a conqueror's soul and make him leave his crown at random, to be scuffled for by slaves, Otway. Third floor, rear room, first door at the head of the stairs. What was I about to encounter there? Mounting the lower flight, and shuddering by the library wall, which to my troubled fancy seemed written all over with horrible suggestions, I took my way slowly upstairs, revolving in my mind many things, among which an admonition uttered long ago by my mother occupied a prominent place. My son, remember that a woman with a secret may be a fascinating study, but she can never be a safe nor even satisfactory companion. A wise saw, no doubt, but totally inapplicable to the present situation, yet it continued to haunt me till the sight of the door to which I had been directed put every other thought to flight save that I was about to meet the stricken nieces of the brutally murdered man. Pausing only long enough on the threshold to compose myself for the interview, I lifted my hand to knock when a rich clear voice rose from within and I heard, distinctly uttered, these astounding words. "'I do not accuse your hand, though I know of none other which would or could have done this deed, but your heart, your head, your will, these I do and must accuse, in my secret mind at least, and it is well that you should know it.' Struck with horror, I staggered back, my hands to my ears, when a touch fell on my arm, and turning I saw Mr. Gryce standing close beside me, with his finger on his lip and the last flickering shadow of a flying emotion fading from his steady, almost compassionate countenance. "'Come, come!' he exclaimed. "'I see you don't begin to know what kind of a world you are living in. Rouse yourself. Remember, they are waiting down below.' "'But who is it? Who was it that spoke?' "'That we shall soon see.' And without waiting to meet, much less answer, my appealing look, He struck his hand against the door, and flung it wide open. Instantly a flush of lovely colour burst upon us. Blue curtains, blue carpets, blue walls. It was like a glimpse of heavenly azure, in a spot where only darkness and gloom were to be expected. Fascinated by the sight, I stepped impetuously forward, but instantly paused again, overcome and impressed by the exquisite picture I saw before me. Seated in an easy chair of embroidered satin but rousing from her half-recumbent position, like one who was in the act of launching a powerful invective, I beheld a glorious woman, fair, frail, proud, delicate, looking like a lily in the thick, creamy, tinted wrapper that alternately clung to and swayed from her finely moulded figure, with her forehead crowned with the palest of pale tresses, lifted and flashing with power, one quivering hand clasping the arm of her chair, the other outstretched and pointing towards some distant object in the room. Her whole appearance was so startling, so extraordinary, that I held my breath in surprise, actually for the moment, doubting if it were a living woman I beheld, or some famous pythoness conjured up from ancient story, to express in one tremendous gesture the supreme indignation of outraged womanhood. Miss Mary Leavenworth whispered that ever-present voice over my shoulder. Ah, Mary Leavenworth! What a relief came with this name! This beautiful creature, then, was not the Eleanor who could load, aim, and fire a pistol. Turning my head, I followed the guiding of that uplifted hand, now frozen into its place by a new emotion, the emotion of being interrupted in the midst of a direful and pregnant revelation, and saw, but no, Here description fails me. Eleanor Leavenworth must be painted by other hands than mine. I could sit half the day and dilate upon the subtle grace, the pale magnificence, the perfection of form and feature, which make Mary Leavenworth the wonder of all who behold her. But Eleanor, I could as soon paint the beatings of my own heart. Beguiling, terrible, grand, pathetic, that face of faces flashed upon my gaze, and instantly the moonlight loveliness of her cousin faded from my memory, and I saw only Eleanor, Only Eleanor. from that moment on for ever. When my glance first fell upon her, she was standing by the side of a small table, with her face turned towards her cousin, and her two hands resting, the one upon her breast, the other on the table, in an attitude of antagonism, but before the sudden pang which shot through me at the sight of her beauty had subsided, her head had turned, her gaze had encountered mine. All the horror of the situation had burst upon her, and instead of a haughty woman, drawn up to receive and trample upon the insinuations of another, I beheld, alas, a trembling, panting human creature, conscious that a sword hung above her head, and without a word to say why it should not fall and slay her. It was a pitiable change, a heart-rending revelation. I turned from it as from a confession. But just then her cousin, who had apparently regained her self-possession at the first betrayal of emotion on the part of the other, stepped forward, and, holding out her hand, inquired, "'Is not this Mr. Raymond? How kind of you, sir! And you,' turning to Mr. Gryce, "'you have come to tell us we are wanted below. Is it not so?' It was the voice i had heard through the door but modulated to a sweet winning almost caressing tone glancing hastily at mr gryce i looked to see how he was affected by it evidently much for the bow with which he greeted her words was lower than ordinary and the smile with which he met her earnest look both deprecatory and reassuring his glance did not embrace her cousin though her eyes were fixed upon his face with an inquiry in their depths more agonizing than the utterance of any cry would have been. Knowing Mr. Gryce as I did, I felt that nothing could promise worse or be more significant than this transparent disregard of one who seemed to fill the room with her terror. And, struck with pity, I forgot that Mary Leavenworth had spoken, forgot her very presence, in fact, and turning hastily away, took one step towards her cousin, when Mr. Gryce's hand falling on my arm, stopped me, "'Miss Leavenworth speaks,' said he. Record to myself, I turned my back upon what had so interested me, even while it repelled, and forcing myself to make some sort of reply to the fair creature before me, offered my arm and led her towards the door. Immediately the pale proud countenance of Mary Leavenworth softened, almost to the point of smiling, and here let me say, there never was a woman who could smile and not smile, like Mary Leavenworth. Looking in my face, with a frank and sweet appeal in her eyes, she murmured, "'You are very good. I do feel the need of support. The occasion is so horrible. And my cousin there,' here a little gleam of alarm nickered into her eyes, "'is so very strange to-day.' "'Hm,' I thought to myself. "'Where is the grand indignant pythoness, with the unspeakable wrath and menace in her countenance, whom I saw when I first entered the room? Could it be that she was trying to beguile us from our conjectures by making light of her former expressions? Or was it possible she deceived herself, so far as to believe us unimpressed by the weighty accusation overheard by us at a moment so critical?' But Eleanor Leavenworth, leaning on the arm of the detective, soon absorbed all my attention. She had regained by this time her self-possession also, but not so entirely as her cousin. A step faltered as she endeavoured to walk, and the hand which rested on his arm trembled like a leaf. "'Would to God I had never entered this house!' said I to myself. And yet, before the exclamation was half uttered, I became conscious of a secret rebellion against the thought, an emotion, shall I say, of thankfulness, that it had been myself rather than another who had been allowed to break in upon their privacy, overhear that significant remark, and, shall I acknowledge it, follow Mr. Gryce and the trembling, swaying figure of Eleanor Leavenworth downstairs. Not that I felt the least relenting in my soul towards guilt, crime had never looked so black, revenge, selfishness, hatred, cupidity, never seemed more loathsome, and yet, but why enter into the consideration of my feelings at that time? They cannot be of interest. Besides, who can fathom the depths of his own soul, or untangle for others, the secret cords of revulsion and attraction which are, and ever have been, a mystery and wonder to himself? Enough that... Supporting upon my arm the half-fainting form of one woman, but with my attention and interest devoted to another, I descended the stairs of the Leavenworth mansion, and re-entered the dreaded presence of those inquisitors of the law who had been so impatiently awaiting us. As I once more crossed that threshold, and faced the eager countenances of those I had left so short a time before, I felt as if ages had elapsed in the interval so much can be experienced by the human soul in the short space of a few over-weighted moments chapter six